From the garden level of Harvard Medical School's historic Vanderbilt Hall in Boston, this is Think Research, a podcast that discusses the stories behind medical research. I'm Abby, your host. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. Dr. Sarah Bleich didn't always know that she wanted to study obesity. She was frustrated that she couldn't easily describe her doctoral research to people, especially her grandfather, a corn farmer from Maryland who had no formal education. She wanted to focus on a topic in public health that touched more than just a single group and was accessible to people outside of academia. One day, sitting on a beach with her husband, it came to her she would focus on obesity for her dissertation. When her husband asked Sarah, why obesity? She replied, because my grandfather will understand it. Sarah Bleich is a professor of public health policy at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health in the Department of Health Policy and Management. She is also the Carol K. Forsheimer Professor at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study. She received her PhD in health policy from Harvard's Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. Professor Bleich's research focuses on evidence-based interventions for obesity prevention and control, particularly among the populations at higher risk for obesity. From 2015 to 2016, she served as the senior policy advisor to the U.S. Department of Agriculture and worked with the former first lady, Michelle Obama's Let's Move initiative. Hello, Dr. Bleich. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Your career has focused on supporting policy alternatives for obesity prevention and control. How did you settle on this area of research? So the answer to that question is personal and professional. On the personal side, um, my my family background is pretty diverse. So one of my grandfathers was a radiologist. Grew up in, and he um, was in New York City, so I grew up going there. And my other grandpa was a corn farmer in Maryland with very little formal education. He couldn't read and write. And when I got into Harvard for grad school, it was a huge deal for my corn farmer grandpa. I was living in LA at the time, and I drove to Maryland to see him, say hello and goodbye, and head up to Boston. And he was a man of very few words, and he said to me, the corn farmer grandpa, he said, Sarah, he said, don't go up there and get uppity. And I thought, oh, you know, grandpa, whatever. And it was when I got back to Harvard as a student and his words came back to me. And I really wanted a topic that the average person could understand, in large part because I was working on issues that were just hard to explain. So if you stopped me in the elevator and you said, you know, Sarah, what are you working on? I couldn't say it simply. And it frustrated me. And so I became very interested in obesity because it's a very accessible topic. It requires no formal education. You can run into anyone on a plane or a train or a bus and you can have a fun conversation about it. And then professionally, I wanted something that really disproportionately touched vulnerable groups with the hopes of making their lives better, but that didn't just touch vulnerable groups because I think you lose your political capital when you just focus on one particular group. I wanted something that affected women. And I wanted something that was international and domestic. And so obesity really checked all those boxes. And I remember when I made this decision, it was really quite arbitrary. I was on the beach one day and at that point when you have to pick your dissertation topic. And I said um, to my now husband, I said, I'm going to study obesity for my dissertation. And he was like, why? And I said, because my grandfather will understand it. And, um, and I have yet to encounter anyone who I can't have a fun conversation with about it. So it's been really fun for the past 10 years or so to work on that topic. Could you describe your career path that has led you to where you are today? Sure. So I, um, when I was applying to college, 
my dad, who grew up in New York, didn't get into Columbia. And I have a competitive spirit. And so he went to NYU. And so I said, I'm going to Columbia. And he would laugh if you heard me saying this, because he definitely appreciates that side of my personality. And I actually applied their early decision and nowhere else and luckily got in. Now, had I not gotten in, obviously, I would have applied elsewhere, but I got very lucky and was packed for New York months before ever going. I was so excited to go. And I grew up going back and forth there a lot because my dad's family was there. And for me, it was just hugely exciting to be in the city. I had no idea what I wanted to do for my major and ended up deciding to take a semester abroad just because I thought it'd be fun and interesting. And there were a couple of options. And I remember thinking, what's the farthest place in the world that I can go where I'd be very, it'd be very hard for me to integrate myself on my own. And so I chose Zimbabwe completely randomly. And I was there at my junior year in college and there were 18 of us, 18 Americans living in the capital city of Harare with host families. And at that point I had taken a lot of the required courses, which is a lot of literature and humanities at Columbia. And I'd also been pre-med for a while. So I was sort of interested in medicine and public health. Um, but it was in Zimbabwe where this was in 1999 and we each had each of us being 18 Americans had someone in our quote unquote extended family. So part of our family in the rural areas die of HIV while we were there. And it was, striking and heartbreaking just to see what happens to a family when someone who is of prime working age with strong economic capabilities and they die from disease and the stigma associated with that and so on. And so I returned to New York and decided I don't want to be pre-med because I don't like the idea of telling someone the same thing over and over again. And I'm a very impatient person. And so I thought there's no way I'm going to be a good doctor. And I like the idea of doing things at the population level thinking like, how do you stop people from dying of HIV and so on and so forth? How do you prevent disease onset, prevent disease progression? But I never heard of public health. And so I sort of defaulted into a psychology major because I had a lot of credits in that area. And then I decided when I graduated that I really liked being in warm weather. Zimbabwe is quite warm. And I thought, I'm not ready to leave the country again. I'm going to California. So me again little daughter of working class parents. I've always worked. I worked in high school. I moved to LA with no job. My parents thought I was crazy. And I fell into a job doing public health consulting where basically I was working for a small shop and they were an evaluation firm. And the job of the, of the firm was to work with LA County and just tell the story of all their public health projects. So it could be working in Skid Row with drug users and, and was the program effective? It could be working at women at sexual risk. And I just, I fell in love with the ability to, to use numbers to tell stories, the ability to help community organizations get more money because of the work that they were doing. And at this particular shop, I was benefited by the fact that it was small and pretty much all the people in my role, which is effectively like a research assistant role, everyone went on to grad school and everyone went on to grad school in public health. And so I had all these people ahead of me that were sort of charting this course that I didn't realize that I was being set on. And so after being there for about a year, I started applying to schools and I knew that I wanted a PhD because I didn't want to, A, pay for it. And B, I just, I felt like that would be a really interesting ability to sort of be able to run projects. That was a sense that a master's wouldn't necessarily allow me to do that. And so I started applying to schools and I didn't have a sense of how competitive I was to apply to master's schools and, and, um, and doctoral level programs and was fortunate enough to get into all of them, which completely stunned me. Came out here to Harvard to visit and was just blown away. And I think that... I was blown away. It was cold, so I was almost blown away. But it was, it was really impressive to me, I think, because there were so many intellectual riches. There, the students were amazing. The faculty was amazing. 
And I think, you know, you walk into a place and you get a feeling and you have to sort of trust that sixth sense after a while. So I had an amazing career here as a student, the hallmark of which was definitely mentorship. And those that same team of people that was my dissertation committee is that same team nine years later that recruited me back on faculty. And they were amazing and ended up, you know, following the obesity line um, based on what we talked about with my grandpa's inspiration and then left here and went to um, Hopkins. And so looking back, it's such a linear path. But along the way, there were so many um, forks in the road. Is it public health? Is it psychology? Is it social work? And I can't know. Um, but what I've always tried to do is whenever I'm at one of those forks is to sort of find the four to five people that I really trust and tell them you know, what it is that matters to me and where it is that I'm trying to go. And through those conversations, things become much more clear. Could you give an example of a time where you were at a fork in the road and you received some guidance that led you down a particular path? Yeah. So what's interesting in academia, and I didn't appreciate beforehand, is that opportunities are always coming at you. And that happens, it can sort of happen as a drip, but then when you're at promotion points and the promotion process is somewhat public where outside letters are being requested, it's pretty common that someone's going up for promotion. And that's a point where people often switch institutions or are recruited away. And so I was at that point at Hopkins, and several different offers started coming in. And my approach to that had always been, I'm really happy in my current job. I don't want to go anywhere. And then I got this one offer, which was so different from everything that I had been doing, and it was to run a girls' school. And I thought, that could be interesting. And so I called up one of my advisors here, David Cutler, who has played a huge role in my life as a mentor and continues to do so now. And we would always have these conversations, not that frequently, but when I was at these different forks in the road. And the question that he asked me then is the question that I have asked myself every single time I've had this same challenge, which is two questions. Sarah, are you happy where you currently are? To which my answer was, I love my job. And the second question was, can you come back if you do this? And the answer was, I couldn't. And so for me, the answer then became very obvious. I loved where I was. The opportunity did not create a revolving door. I couldn't return if I didn't like it. And so I better for me to stay put. And when I went to go to DC and have that opportunity, I again asked myself, do I love what I'm doing? I do. Can I use this opportunity as a way to enrich my own learning, but also come back? And I could. And that's sort of what made me do it. And I, I think that the take home point is it's hard to, it's, it's not smart or efficient to reinvent the wheel. And I think that over everyone over your career, you find people who just, for whatever reason, they wrap themselves their arms around you and they say, I believe in that person and I'm going to help her or him. And I think that leveraging that and letting people help you in meaningful ways can you know, shift the arc of a career in a really meaningful way. And then hopefully what it also does is it causes you to sort of reach back and say, you know, how can I help someone else who either I can relate to or I'm at a moment in time where I can be helpful to them. But certainly much like, you know, My grandfather said, don't go up there and get uppity. It's all sort of giving back to the institutions that have helped you, to the communities that have helped you. Um, Because none of us, I think it's fair to say, would be, none of us who have feel like we've achieved something in life would be where we are without other people serving as helping hands. One of your research projects looks at environmental impacts on obesity and specifically sugary drinks consumed by children. What did you find and how did you do this research? So when I was a student here, I did some work looking at sugary beverage consumption, which more recently has begun to to go down. But then it was quite high among youth. It's still relatively high. And it was particularly high among black adolescents. 
And when I took the job at Hopkins, which is where I went after grad school here, I became really interested in doing something in the communities at Hopkins, which looked like communities that I grew up in, which are sort of low-income, working-class neighborhoods. And um, around this time, menu labeling had passed as part of the Affordable Care Act. But the idea is that in large chain restaurants around the country, calories will be posted alongside price. But it got me thinking that the average kid, the average person, has no idea of calories. And so if you give them information about calories, it's not going to mean much. And I wanted to really look at sugary beverages or soda because people understand what that is. It's sort of hard to say healthy snack, unhealthy snack, because it means different things to different people. But everybody knows what a soda is. And so we went into corner stores in Baltimore City. And we wanted to give kids information about calories, but make it matter to them. So you're a kid, you walk into the store, you go up to the beverage cases, and you would see one of four signs, one at a time, randomly posted. And the sign would either tell you what the bottle says, which is it has 250 calories, or it would take that exact same information and say it differently. So it would say that it's 50 minutes of running, or five miles of walking, or 16 teaspoons of sugar. And um, we did the study a couple of times, and the effects were, I think, pretty impressive. So we, we found that... When you told kids that they had to walk for five miles, they purchased fewer beverages, fewer calories, fewer large volume beverages, so going from above a 16 ounce to below a 16 ounce. And then the great thing is that when you took all those signs down and life went back to the way it was before, the kids still continued to buy fewer calories, fewer large beverages, and fewer beverages at all. So for me, I felt like it was quite a success story. And where I'd love to go with that is thinking about... Um, now that we're going to see calories in chain restaurants around the country, there's nothing that really can be done with the large chains that are subject to the menu labeling rule that's federally authorized by FDA. But I think there's things that can happen in localities with smaller restaurants looking to attract a more health conscious clientele and give them the same information about calories, but do it in a way that matters. You mentioned the menu labeling requirement that was passed as part of the Affordable Care Act. How has the restaurant industry reacted to this? So it's changed over time. Uh, so the Affordable Care Act passed in 2010, and that included in it the menu labeling requirement, which prior to that had bubbled up and happened in many cities and municipalities around the country, like New York was the first, um, and then it became part of federal law in 2010. And then there's a period where there's a proposed rule, there's a comment period, and then a final rule. And so that process has taken several years. Again, it had, was passed in 2010, so quite a long incubation period. And so over that time, what has happened is you've had different industries have sort of changing perspectives on the law. And so what actually helped get it passed in the first place is that the restaurant industry that had been pretty strongly opposed to at the local level sort of said, fine, the writing is on the wall. You're going to require this information. I don't want different requirements in Seattle versus New York City. Let's just make this national so that we can do the same thing in our McDonald's or Chipotle's or Arby's all around the country. But there was a lot of pushback from other industries like the pizza industry, for example, because they sort of felt like the toppings make it very complicated to put calories up. Also, the prepared food in supermarkets became part of the final rule. And this the trickiness of having to report those calories. You had a lot of industries that were pushing back. And the law is imperfect. Um, it is probably the biggest thing to happen in obesity policy in the past 10 years at the federal level. But, you know, again, it is giving people absolute calories, which for many, many people, including highly educated people, it doesn't mean that much. It also allows in restaurants, like you could walk into a place like Chipotle and you would get a range. So it would say your burrito has between 300 and 1100 calories because you can build it yourself. And so making a health-based decision on calories requires for you to know how many calories are in cheese and avocado and sour cream and so on. So it is something that I think will resonate with a swath of consumers. But again, going back to this idea of making information matter, I think that we could think about creative ways to make it matter more 
in restaurants that are not subject to this rule. And again, those would be those which have fewer than 20 outlets around the country. On this broader umbrella of making information matter, I think another piece of it is when you want to encourage other industries to do things in public health, you have to say it in a way that people can understand. So for example, if I wanted to go into schools and I wanted to encourage healthier eating, like my pitch should not be let's encourage healthier eating. My pitch should be if you give the kids healthier food, you're probably going to improve attendance and concentration and test scores. That's something that if you're a school administrator, you can wrap your mind around. Similarly, when we were going around and doing the studies in Baltimore, going into the corner stores and putting up information, a reasonable pushback that a lot of the stores gave us was, you want kids to buy less soda, which is our biggest moneymaker? And to which I would have to say, yes. I mean, luckily we found that um, we, we didn't do a business analysis. We don't know the cost benefit and if they actually lost money over it. But those are the sorts of questions that need to be answered to sort of bring partners on. And I think the way to think about it is it is perfectly reasonable for any private company, a small mom and pop corner store or something larger, to want to maximize revenue. And in some cases, if you're large, you have fiduciary responsibility to shareholders to do just that. It is also perfectly reasonable in public health to want to maximize health. So it is finding the sweet spot where you can you can have both of those objectives be met, which is hard. Um, but it is those sweet spots where I think you can gain the most traction. And it's usually in those places where you're motivated by the same bit of information and you've and you've sort of said it in a way that's probably using very different language, but is easily understandable by both parties. Could you tell us more about what your experience was like going into Baltimore corner stores and getting them to participate in your study? Sure. So as I mentioned, I'm, I'm from Baltimore, grew up going to corner stores my whole life, um, but had never come at it. I've always come at it, I'm going to buy chips in a soda perspective and never I want to enroll you in a study perspective. And I was surprised at how hard it was. Um, so people were in general very welcoming. But the minute I explained sort of what the goal was, which was getting kids to buy less soda, um, it was a non-starter for many stores. The other thing that was interesting is there were a number of stores which wanted to participate, but to be in the study, you had to sell water and you had to sell diet soda. There had to be some alternative, a non-calorie alternative for a kid if they wanted to shift away from a sugary beverage. And there were a number of stores where that just wasn't even an option. And so I said, well, could we, could we bring those beverages in? Could you stock them? And they said, there's just no demand for them. So I that was a little bit trickier than I expected. The other practical constraint um, in Baltimore is about, at the time, about 90% of corner stores were Korean-owned, and many of those owners did not speak English very well. And so that created a big barrier to entry. But despite those challenges, um, we did find a number of stores that were willing to participate, and um, and they were willing to participate more than once, which suggests that, at, at least on balance, the study didn't hurt their bottom line. Where I want to sort of take this is I think the case around soda is pretty clear. You can, you can with meaningful information, I think you can manipulate what kids buy and what people buy generally with soda. I think for me, what's in my back pocket is how do you apply this to snacks and, and other sort of discretionary types of calories in the diet. Um, we as Americans get a lot of our calories from snacking. Soda is one piece of that, but the snacking is another piece. And if you can sort of steer people into healthier snack choices would be another thing that'd be really interesting. Um, but what's got me most busy these days is we're doing a big evaluation of the Philadelphia beverage tax, which was implemented in January of this past year. So we've done the baseline data collection. We're in the field now doing the three months and the summer we'll do the six month data collection. There have been reports in the news that in response to the soda tax, some companies are taking larger quantities of soda off of store shelves. Could you talk about what you've seen in terms of early effects of the Philadelphia soda tax? Sure. So in Philadelphia, we don't know the effect. Um, 
from an empirical perspective. But to your point about company behaviors, what Pepsi has done is they've said, um, we are not going to sell within the Philadelphia city limits anything bigger than two liters or above. We're not going to sell them. And the reason for that is the Philadelphia tax is applying a 1.5 cent tax per ounce, which equates to about $1.44 on a 12-pack of soda. So once you get into larger quantities, you're adding in considerably more money. And the, the feeling, and this is at this point, it's all anecdotal, not empirical. The feeling is that it is going to be a big deterrent for customers. They're not going to buy it. So don't even put it on the market. Um, and that I suspect, I don't know this, but I suspect from Pepsi's perspective, you know, part of what you want to do is you want to brand people early. And so if the prices are so high that you can't get people in the door, then you're losing some of your market share. Now, what we've seen in other places, so Mexico has a tax, um, Berkeley passed the first one in the, in the United States. And what we're seeing is that as a result of these taxes, purchases of sugary beverages are going down, consumption of sugary beverages is going down. And in Mexico, at least, it's having the largest impact among lower income populations, which from an equity standpoint, if we know that sugary beverages are highest among low-income populations. They also have the highest risk for obesity. And we're seeing that the effect of the tax is, is strongest among groups at highest risk. There's a potential for sort of attenuating some of the existing disparities. Um, we won't know the outcome in Philly for several months, um, but I, it'll be interesting to see. And we are looking at both low-income and high-income communities to see if the effect of the tax differs. And then most recently, as part of the 2016 presidential election, there are five new localities around the country which have passed taxes. And so it'd be very interesting to see both what they show and if this momentum brings more momentum and if we see more taxes. Is the goal to stop people from drinking soda? I think there's multiple goals. There, one goal is to create a price point which stops people from becoming soda drinkers. You can sort of think about this as a cigarette tax. At a certain price point, some people are just never going to enter that market. But then you have people that drink soda all the time. And so maybe you can ratchet back their consumption. And there's, there's very strong simulation studies which show as you increase prices, you change behavior. I mean, I've experienced this myself personally. I remember <laughs> I, was at, I was at Las Vegas in the airport and I was buying like a burrito and a soda. And I'd forgotten to buy, and I'm a Diet Coke drinker, and I'd forgotten to buy Diet Coke to go with my burrito. And so I circle back in the line and I go to the front and I hand the woman the Diet Coke and she says to me, this was like five years ago, That'll be $4.50. I said, no, 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 ma'am. I just wanted to get the soda. She says, that'll be $4.50. I said, ma'am, I don't want the soda. But that's sort of a very extreme example of pricing. I am an avid Diet Coke drinker, but I chose not to buy it because the price got to a point that for me, it just didn't make sense anymore. Um, so I think that that a successful tax and from a public health perspective, would um, it would stop new users or reduce the influx of new users. It would decrease consumption among common users, and it might potentially eliminate um, use among sometimes users. The other thing that might happen is you sort of get to have this, you start to have this culture shift around drinking sugary beverages. And so it is completely unacceptable for me to light up a cigarette in here because you'd say to me, it's bad for my health. It's bad for your health. Culturally, we're at a point where you can do that. And it's also illegal. Um, we're not at that point culturally quite yet with beverages, but I think we're getting to a point where they are not as cool as they once were. And we're seeing on the on the beverage company side of things, we're seeing a lot of innovation around different product lines like sparkling water, things that don't have artificial sweeteners but have non-calories, which will be attractive to the consumer base. So I think time will tell. But on in mass, consumption of sugary beverages has been going down over time. And I suspect that we'll never completely get rid of it, but we will bring it down a lot. The question that it raises for me is that you can think of it as a balloon. If you're a big multinational company and you reduce your sales in the US and you can't then recoup them through another beverage line, 
then what the companies do is they look internationally for new markets. And in transitional economies where we're seeing obesity rates start to increase, like India or China, like if their rates of obesity match ours, it's going to be debilitating to economies. So I think there's a there's a bigger perspective of if we sort of push and pull these companies in the U.S., what are the potential unintended consequences outside? In 2015, you were appointed as a White House fellow, and one of your assignments was the former First Lady's Let's Move initiative. What did that appointment entail? So... Stepping back, I was um, at Hopkins when I finished here, my PhD. I went to Hopkins for eight years and had never really had any any real world experience in the policy world. And I heard about the White House Fellowship. And in prior administrations, there had never been such a strong alignment between the East Wing, the West Wing, and the USDA in terms of thinking about how do we improve nutrition among low-income Americans, which for me is just a topic that I care a lot about. And so I was very fortunate to be accepted into the program and then have an opportunity to work at USDA as a senior policy advisor to the Undersecretary of Food and Nutrition and then also work on the Let's Move campaign in a similar capacity. And at the time that I got there, I was in year seven of an eight-year administration. And so much of the work was around legacy. So many things had happened during that time, such as the child nutrition bill. And then they were working at the time on the reauthorization, which sort of changed um, school foods, for example, and many other things. And so much of what I did when I was working with um, the Let's Move campaign was help to tell that story, both from the USDA side, which, did a, which, is an impl- which does a lot of implementation related to the um, food, nu- food nutrition assistance programs, but then also on the Let's Move side. And I have to say, I didn't really know what to expect. I sort of thought that I would go in and be disenchanted with government, but it'd be a good experience for me to sort of see how the sausage got made. And I drunk the Kool-Aid and I fell in love with it. And I think the main reason for that is I had this perception that if you're in government, you don't work very hard and you're a bureaucrat and you push paper around. And I was blown away by the caliber of the people, in in part because they could easily be making multiples of their salary somewhere else. But they had chosen this work to serve making very little money relative to what you could be making elsewhere. And on topic areas, which just truly, in this case, low-income populations and improving nutrition and lowering obesity, which you really can stand to make an impact. And I think that there are probably few, if any, sectors, even the biggest ones in the U.S., where you can have the reach and scope and impact that federal government has. So I walked away from it with a much more positive perspective. But what's been nagging at the back of my mind is how do you take skeptics like me get them to sort of appreciate the value of government without having them take a year out of their life and become federal employees, which is not going to happen for everyone, obviously. But big picture, I think that one of the reasons that I enjoyed it so much is it it helped me sort of appreciate what are some of the, the secrets to success. And in this world, you know, we're always talking about grants, at least in my world in public health, we're always talking about grants and everything is about where you trained and, and what you know. And And what I walked away from Washington appreciating is that at a certain level, everyone's got pedigree in the sense that they've gotten good training and they've gone to good schools, but lots of people don't have good soft skills. And the ability to play nice with others, to speak across different disciplines, to have the fluency of dealing with difficult people or people that have trained differently or people from different cultures and and just do that in a meaningful way is, I think, undervalued in in this sector, the sector being academia. And for me, I just I saw how powerful it could be in terms of making things happen in Washington. And so going back to my grandfather's words, 
I also always try to say things very simply because even if I'm talking to someone who has got 45 degrees, they could be trained differently from me. And so if I use complicated jargon from my discipline, chances are, no matter how smart they are, they're not going to understand what I'm saying. And I think that in general, if you want to get information out there and you want people to hear what you're saying, given the onslaught, and we've talked about this, given the onslaught that we all experience, you just got to say things simply. You've got to break them down and make them matter. And in fact, one of the ways that I've tried to do that is with a lot of the research that I do, it matters to different populations. Many of them are low income. And so I enjoy talking to reporters from, let's say, the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times. But I also try to get on the FM stations and actually do things that are more in the popular press. And I remember once I was dropping my girls off at daycare and the night before I'd been on an FM station in Baltimore giving the very simple message. It wasn't about my research. It was just sort of education around obesity. And I said, look, if your listeners are looking for any nugget of advice and they want to lose weight, just eat less and exercise more. And if you can follow that, you will have some success. So I'm walking into my daughter's daycare and there's a security guard standing there talking to one of her friends. It's two black women. And one of them turns to the other and she goes, I heard it last night on the radio. The lady said, eat less and exercise more. And now I'm going to try it. And I thought, this makes sense. And so, you know, I, I think that even when you have the fortune to sort of be on NPR and, and distill or disseminate research results, there's still a huge disconnect um, because the people that tend to listen to that channel are highly educated. The words are not necessarily words that people can understand. And I think if you know your audience and you have a simple message and you keep repeating it, I think the staying power is a lot stronger. What is next for you and your research? So as I mentioned, we are just at the beginning stages of evaluating the Philadelphia beverage tax. And so that will go on for the next several years. I've gotten very interested, having been at USDA, in the SNAP program, which is a supplemental nutrition assistance program. So that program um, is quite large. And it's of the suite of safety net programs around the country. This is by far the largest. And um, it serves about 42 or so million Americans a year with a price tag around the 70, 75 billion dollars. So it's very, very large. And there have been over time through the, 20, the farm bills, which is, which is how this program is authorized every five years, there have been attempts to sort of infuse more public health into the SNAP program. And I've gotten very interested in thinking about other ways that you might do that. So particularly given my work around sugary beverages, one thing that makes SNAP interesting is that when you have a SNAP card, which gives you a certain amount of money to spend per month based on your income, you can buy whatever you want, with the exception of a few things like prepared foods. You can't buy cigarettes. You can't buy alcohol. Um, but you can buy soda and you can buy candy. And I think there's an open question about does that make sense with federal dollars, given that we know that programs like Medicaid, which is insurance for low-income populations, they spend a lot of money treating conditions like obesity and the conditions associated with it. And it's a tough one. You know, I was a SNAP baby. At the time, it was called food stamps. My husband was a SNAP baby, and meaning that we were on it as kids. And, and you know, does it make sense to tell parents what they can and cannot buy if they need a little helping hand? And it's a tricky one. Um, the way that I come down on the issue is I think that the potential benefits that you might gain by sort of having a little bit more purposeful directing of how SNAP benefits are used might be outweighed by how that might feel for someone who is a recipient of those benefits. But there are many perspectives on this issue. It is very much a third rail topic. I suspect it will become quite a heated debate in the 2018 Farm Bill coming up. This notion of incentives versus restrictions as it relates to sugary beverages on the restriction side or encouraging fruits and vegetables on the incentive side. 
But I think that's an area where public health could contribute a lot. And there's a lot of work being done already. Thank you again for joining us, Dr. Bleich. It has been a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thank you for having me. Next time on Think Research, Dr. Haley Marks talks to us about the SMART bandage, which looks to improve the treatment and monitoring of wounds. Harvard Catalyst Think Research is supported by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Subscribe to Think Research on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. To find out more about our podcast or suggest topics for future episodes, visit our website, www.catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch. Thank you.